It's time once again for Unprofessional. I am, as always, Lex Friedman, and with me, by my virtual side, is the pompatus of love, Dave Whiskus. Hi, Dave. Hi, Lex. I'm so glad we're together again. I, I don't know how I live without you. Continuing our streak, Dave, of having only exceptional guests after whom other podcasts would lust, we are joined <laughs> this time by Jim Kudal. Hi, Jim. Hi. And people do not call me the Space Cowboy, by the way. I was going to ask. Now, I got really nervous now, just now when I said your last name. I didn't know if I should go Kudal or Kudal, and I tried to sort of muffle it. So what's the right way? The second, Kudal. Oh, good. Kudal. So I kind of, I, I feel like I did the right, right thing then. Yeah, that's good. Right. Well, Jim, tell the, tell the listeners who you are. Who is Jim Kudal? For those who don't know. About the work stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I own a uh, creative firm in Chicago called Kudal Partners, and I guess... Uh, we're best known for a couple of projects that we are currently running. One is Field Notes brand, which is the line of uh, small memo books and uh, stationary products that we've developed with our partner in Portland, uh, Aaron Draplin. And the second one is The Deck, which is a targeted online ad network that uh, serves ads uh, on 50 or more than 50 sites and services that are targeted towards design, web, and creative professionals. Uh, we run kudal.com. And uh, as we were just talking a little bit, we also ran a little thing called Layer Tennis, which was a live design competition on Friday afternoons. We've run three seasons of that and uh, it was very popular. So some people know us from Layer Tennis, some people know us from Kudal, some people know us from the deck or Field Notes. So, I was just thinking, it really worked out well, Jim, that you ended up getting hired by Kudal Partners because you had the, the right last name and everything. <laughs> it's, sort of, it's sort of funny is when we started the firm, I'd worked at a big, I was a creative director at a bigger agency and left and stole an account to start the business way back when and uh, uh, had a long debate about what we were going to call it and i wanted to call it something like blast or some sort of a you know hip name for it and a guy i knew an older guy i knew uh told me i had to call it by uh my name as opposed to some sort of a brand idea and he was from sort of the old school of you know foot cone and belding and uh you know leo <laughs> burnett and um i don't know why i let him talk me into it but i did and that was that so i've always felt that if i had a thing to name that I was going to do after myself. I feel like Friedman is too generic and I would go with Lex. So yeah, yeah. Lex partners. That's my new business. Lex Corp. Yeah. It's sort of got a kind of a evil feel to it too, which is kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Superman really did me in. Yeah. The, the, I, <laughs> what I love is whenever, well, it's not every time I meet somebody, but many times I would say the majority of the time when I meet somebody new for the first time and they hear my name, they will say, Oh, like Lex Luthor. And I always like to say, I have never heard that before because I'm a jerk. Right. <laughs> if I were you, I would say who? Much rarer, extremely rare is the, oh, like Lex Luger, who was a professional wrestler in the <laughs> mid 80s. Yeah. I can't even think of any other Lexes now that I think of it. Yeah, not a lot of Lexes in the world. Thank goodness. Yeah. So uh, we could talk about getting getting really drunk and then not setting an alarm and missing the first part of your show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first part was great, too. You missed the best part. Yeah. So glad we don't do this like live on a stage because then it'd be screwed. Do you have good oversleeping stories, Jim? I don't. I sort of have the sleep habits of a farmer. I I can't <laughs> oversleep anymore. I'm I get up early and uh, once I I'm sort of one of those people that once I open my eyes that's it. I don't roll back over and go back to sleep. So what time do you usually get up, Farmer Jim? It's Farmer Jim. like at six or so. You know, I got to slop the pigs or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I used to be worse. I used to when I had when we had clients and I had a lot of more things to worry about and things that had to be done by a certain time and all that bullshit. I used to get up, you know, at four thirty and come to work and work for three hours or four hours before anybody got here because I sort of felt like I needed that time alone. I was running the firm, but at the same time, I was writing copy and coming up with ideas and doing layouts and doing web programming. And I felt like I spent my whole nine to five day running the business, you know, chasing new business and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I didn't have time to do the creative and I, you know, and a lot of people actually have that problem is that you, you're a, you're a writer, you're an art director, you're a designer and you start a firm and it's great, but then you wind up being a manager and not a designer anymore. 
I've never been a morning person. I, my natural state, I will stay up until like four in the morning every night and then I'll wake up at noon every day. And I, I've tried to correct that and I've had jobs where I've had to correct that. And I've, I can do, if I have to, getting up at six or seven in the morning and going to a normal job. But man, that's just not how I, that's not how I naturally exist. Yeah. I, I sort of fall right into the work day, I guess. So I, you know, and I try to separate, this is dangerously close to talking about work, but I, <laughs> I, I try to separate, I don't live very far from our studio, maybe about two and a half miles. And I generally, this is sort of weird of me, but I generally never do work at home. Like aside from a quick answering an email or something, if I have something I need to do, I will get on my bike or jump in my car and actually physically come to the studio and do it here. And for me, that, that has always allowed me a really good way to separate the two things. So, you know, when I'm home, I don't worry about work. And when I'm work, I don't worry about home. Very often when I wake up in the morning around six something Eastern because of my kids, mm -hmm. uh, if I, I message Dave, he's still awake from the night before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's happened on more than a couple of occasions. <laughs> we used, I used to have a thing that, you know, Harper, uh, Reed? Okay, yeah, we used man. to have this thing where uh, I would be getting into work like at five in the morning to work on something, and I would sign on to Twitter, and he would say, good morning, Jim, and I would say, good night, Harper. <laughs> it was sort of <laughs> yeah. like we were in this perfect timing that went on for weeks. I don't even know if Dave knows this, but I once did a different podcast many years ago, early in the infancy of podcasting. I, I thought I was your first. I know. It was a friend of mine named Seth Brown, uh, with whom I had gone to my nerdy summer camp for many, many years. And he and I did many things together at camp because we had very similar senses of humor. And so he was Seth and I was Lex and people referred to us as Leth and Sex a lot of the time. Um, it was clever, I guess. And so we called our podcast that many years after camp. And it was not a great podcast, although we had fun making it. But I was living on the West Coast at the time, and he was on the East Coast. And it was we could never do a podcast together now because of the time zone matchup. Since we're both on the same time zone, it wouldn't work. But I always – he called it Lex Standard Time where – he would be <laughs> staying up super late and I was never, I have never really been capable of staying up super late, but because we had the different time zone, we could do it late-ish my time and insanely late his time. So he'd be recording, you know, two in the morning and we'd get the podcast on. It was great. Well, that's what we did when I was in Amsterdam. We had to record the first few episodes with, with me doing the show at like two in the morning and you at, at uh, like eight in the evening or something. Right. When we used to do layer tennis, I always felt sorry for the contestants who are from new zealand or from australia because, <laughs> because here we'd all be drinking beer and laughing and say rosecrans from new york was writing the play-by-play -play and, and cracking wise and having to drink there and they'd be just waking up the next day so <laughs> it'd be like sort of funny is it safe to guess then that you don't stay up super late jim uh no i don't really i uh i have a 15 year old and a 14 year old and a 12 year old and sort of the rhythms of your life sort of change with your kids so i used to be one to stay up late reading or watching an old movie but now i'm i, I just don't very often once in a while once in a while if i'm in vegas or something i'll stay up late right. but yeah i had a, a dave knows this about me i think but i had a, a relatively early bedtime for much of my childhood still do what are you talking about i have strict parents well i mean my bedtime for a long time and i had bedtimes you know into high school and it was 10 p.m and so now I usually go to sleep sometime between 11 and 11.30 p.m. I try to get into bed by 11 and then I shut down the Kindle by 11.30. But <laughs> every, time I'm, uh, every time I'm off that, anytime I'm up later, like if I haven't even gone upstairs and it's 11.27, I still to this day feel like I'm breaking some kind of serious rule. Like I can't believe how late I'm staying up. Like you're getting away with something. Yeah, right. It's crazy. Maybe that's why I like staying up late. Maybe maybe it's that feeling of I'm in control. I get to do what I want. There's no grown-ups to tell me not to. Although I, I also just have like sleeping problems. <laughs> but that's sort of interesting, you know, because when you're a kid, you always thought when I when I grow up, I'm going to stay up late or I'm going to do all these things, you know. And I was before thinking about talking about things unrelated to work. I was thinking that you know when you're like. 12 or 13 and you just like go from one thing to the next for first you think you're going to be really into chess and you get into that for <laughs> three months and then you're somebody beats your pants and and you, you yeah i don't like chess anymore then you're going to get into slot car racing and you get into that for a while and you get and you just keep trying things out 
I feel like I'm sort of stuck in that, you know, like I'm, <laughs> you know, aside from sort of the basic family stuff and work stuff, it's like, I'm, it seems like as I look back at what, what would I talk about that is unrelated to my work? I look back at all these different things that have, uh, 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 caught my attention for extended periods of time and then I got bored with them. You know what I mean? It's sort of, I feel like that's, that's the way I go, I guess. I, or maybe I just haven't found the right, I don't know if we call them hobby or whatever, something outside of pursuit. Pursuit. Okay. There was a, there was a study recently that was talking about how kids today don't have enough uh, boredom in their lives. They're too stimulated and it's, it's, it's prohibitive to uh, creative thought and creative problem solving. And sometimes I, I wondered if, if maybe my life is too filled with things to look at and blinking screens mm-hmm. and blinking lights and, and like I don't feel like I'm I'm not doing creative things. I feel like most of my time is doing creative things. But I have to wonder if I just turned everything off, what would I get done? Yeah, I th- I've thought about that too. And the other thing related to that is sometimes I wonder what it would be like to just do one thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like write a book or build a house or tend a garden or, you know what I mean? And just do one thing and do it great and just concentrate on that. And like, then I laugh at myself and check Twitter. And then write, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then make plans to travel to Amsterdam or whatever. You know what I right. mean? Like, but I yeah. totally hear that because I would. I often think, you know, man, what if I just stopped twittering, and you know, or if I just. I, I, but I, I'm motivated to consider it, but I'm definitely not motivated to do it because I feel like I would miss it too much. I get a lot of pleasure out of those things, and while I think I could probably be better at any one thing were I to give it that undivided attention, I, I'm not motivated enough to actually do it. I'm okay with how things are. I guess. Somebody just said this, and it really stuck with me. It said they said. Okay, say you're at the let's say you're at the bank, all right? And there's a line of two people and you're the third person in the line. Don't put your hand in your pocket. Do not get the phone. Do not grab the phone. Try not to grab the phone. And like it was only 10 years ago when I didn't even have a phone in my pocket. So I'm at the bank and I'm the second person in line and God, I can't help it. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I, I it's, can't, it's programmed. I, I know it's so strange. Like I can't have this time where I could just kind of stare blankly into space and zone out. It's sort of interesting, you know, like I, how quickly our habits of attention are like, overwhelmed you know and what am i reading i'm checking a tweet or i'm you know I'm, what am i doing it's like it's <laughs> the tweet that sticks with me that i can't i mean i'm totally guilty of it and i think of it but it doesn't impact it doesn't make me change was alex sulkin who's a comedian i think he's a writer for family guy yeah um and he tweeted hey i wonder what i can check out on my phone me 30 seconds after locking my phone and <laughs> It's uh, it's so bad. Like what I try to do now is when we go upstairs, and I'm bad at it. I've I've used to be good at it, and I've gotten terrible at it. But when we go upstairs to start the bath time bedtime routine for the kids, uh, mine are younger than fifteen. Um, <laughs> I uh, I try to leave the phone downstairs so that it's not there because as soon as there's downtime, I just can't help it. And I know that I'm doing it, and I know that I don't love that I'm doing it, and I still do it. And so now I've instead of leaving the phone downstairs. I started feeling bad because I was checking my pocket and not seeing the phone and being disappointed. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to check my pocket, I know I'll just put it back in my pocket and leave it there. Forget it. You are in I, a bad way, man. It's yeah. bad. Yeah. I have yeah. days, well, most days, I wake up and I'll lay in bed for like 45 minutes reading stuff on my phone before I finally decide to get up. Oh, that's just, that's exactly what I was going to say. Clay Johnson, do you know him? He spoke, I was, I spoke at Webstock in, uh, Wellington, New Zealand, and he spoke and he spoke, he did, uh, red, all kinds of cool stuff. He's, great guy and a great speaker and one thing he said he thought i thought was so interesting he said for god's sakes do not use your phone as an alarm clock and his reasoning was is if you use your phone the alarm goes off it's in your goddamn hand already and you're checking the email you know what i mean like you can't there's all of a sudden it's like there's no warm-up to the day at all you know you're just like wake up and you're in the midst of it so i thought that was sort of interesting so i've tried not to do that that's interesting. I should probably switch to that system. Because I, I do the same thing at night when I go to bed. I'll lay there for, you know, for half an hour or something reading stuff before I finally put the phone down and go to sleep. Oh, I just go back to the book I'm reading, whether it's on the Kindle or a regular book. And then I have to go back 10 pages to see where I fell asleep the night before. Exactly. So, I right. do that every time, too. I've decided I don't use my... My wife is a definite iPhone in bed person at night, but I don't do it at night. I put it down and... 
it's Kindle time or you sleep gotta time. you got to draw the line somewhere, right? That's right. That's the one spot. But then when I wake up, I, de- I don't have to wake up from my iPhone or any alarm clock because I have young children. Um, but then, I mean, when they wake me up much earlier than I feel like waking up, I definitely spend 20 minutes catching up on Twitter as my segue from asleep to awake. It's bad. I keep thinking right now as we're talking about sleeping and waking up about how my senior year of high school and I had been accepted early to Brandeis and I knew where I was going. And then they send you the documentation like, hey, here, let's have you, um, uh, you know, pick out what your classes are going to be for your first semester of your freshman year. And I'm like, I am not going to start my first class each day until 9 a.m. so that I can sleep really late each day. Right. And then that was like just the stupidest high schoolist thought because 9 a.m. is so early in college <laughs> and everybody else had been smarter than me, it seemed, except for the other people in my nine o'clock class. But everybody else was starting their days at like 11 and there I was making sure I got to sleep in time so I could get up for a nine o'clock class every day. Terrible. Well, they say that younger people need more sleep, and I don't feel like I ever grew out of that. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that everybody who listens to podcasts, I mean, it's, it's in the same situation with the, you know, the phone and all the screens. I don't know. I mean, we've done this to ourselves. I don't know if it's, if there's, I don't know if there's much to be made of it. And I just don't like the idea of being a slave to it. Right, right. I, you know, it's a, in a way, it reminds me of, how travel can be this is all right this is gonna meander but um (laughs) but how travel can be because so if i have my wife and my three kids and we go out to dinner in chicago and have a lovely time and laugh and we come home and let's say we play a game of gin rummy or something and then six months from now nobody ever says remember that friday night in early april when we had dinner and played gin rummy now if we're have just taken a train to budapest and we all went together. We went out to dinner. We went back in the hotel lobby and played gin rummy. Six <laughs> months from then, everybody would remember that day. And I think there's something about being out of your normal circumstances that solidifies the memory in some way or catalogs the memory in some way. The travel can do that. And I wonder if maybe that's something we're missing in our screen captured sort of life is that we're everything's running into everything else and it's all pleasurable we, we we laugh at twitter we like to crack jokes we like to uh listen to podcasts or whatever but none of it is any different than anything else of it like there's no definition like there's no defining factor to now i'm getting kind of philosophical but but you know what i mean like i wonder like i just i wonder if we're missing some way to catalog our memories that now i think like last week what did i do well i don't know it seems like one big series of days of working out and checking twitter and designing a logo you know what i mean like it doesn't tuesday doesn't have as much meaning as tuesday used to have i guess maybe well it, it, but it also maybe there's a bell curve or something there because it, ages ago it would have been that you'd wake up on the farm and go out and start your day at five in the morning or whatever and work until it was dark, and then you were done, then you'd come inside, and you'd go, you'd eat dinner and go to sleep. Yeah. And that was every day of your life. And for some people, I guess that still is. But that was, like, the way we lived. Yeah. We, they. Yeah. Those people. I uh, I sometimes wonder, when when are we all done Twittering? <laughs> yeah. Like, when, when is the game over? <laughs> and it's... I, I will never win Twitter. Right, exactly. And it's, I don't know, these things that are... I can't pronounce the word I want to use, so I'm going to skip. But these things that are that are sort of omnipresent and just sort of exist and are just there, I worry about just what you're sort of referencing, I think, Jim. It's like there is no specific finite end until you decide I'm not doing this anymore or until all of your friends decide they're not Twittering anymore. And they're like, well, I guess there's no point. Um, but if it's just going to keep going, is it going to just suck up increasingly more time? Do we all eventually just forget about it? It's weird because it's it's definitely something that I devote a lot of attention to during yeah. the day each day. And it's it's weird. Twitter is ruining the world. That's what I'm trying to say. That was the genius of pull to refresh in Tweety was that if you just pull hard enough, you get more stuff. And right. now every everything has that. So we're always pulling. We're always getting more stuff. <laughs> and it's a never ending stream of more stuff. And none of it does us any good. All right. So if, let's say you go to sleep at midnight and then the next morning you're busy. You get up and you're doing stuff. So now it's like one in, after, one in the afternoon the next day. And this is the first time you've been on Twitter in 24 hours. How far back do you read? See, I, I take some grief for this. I use Matt and Reese's tweet marker and I try to keep my Twitter 
following list cold well enough that I read every tweet. So whatever the time frame is, when I wake up in the morning, it's been eight hours, seven hours. I start wherever I left off the night before. I read them all. There are times if I get way behind that I will, you know, declare a little bit of bankruptcy and then just pick up from recent. But in general, I would say that 98% of the time I'm reading all the tweets or at least skimming all the tweets. Oh, I don't do that. I, 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 whatever the default number that it pulls for me is sort of what I go back to, you know, unless I'm, you know, following a conversation or something that went back further. So I sort of feel, I love Matt Howie's thing about Twitter is about today and Facebook is about yesterday. Like the idea that Twitter is about who you want to be and Facebook is about who you were. There's something to that. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, that's pretty yeah. smart thinking by Matt. Like, and then you start to think about the people that you follow on each of those platforms, and you start to see how true that is. Like, I have tons of people I follow on Twitter who I have never talked to and probably never will. You know what I mean? Or meet in real life. And, right. But I, I have none. I had none of those on facebook and it's funny especially because for me facebook it was so important to me when it started out that i'm only going to befriend people i genuinely know and like and want to be friends with on facebook and twitter is enough different that that was never a thing like i wanted to just follow people who are interesting to me which is not many of the people i know personally well the thing about twitter they it's set up the capital is having followers and on facebook that's not the case so at least for me i think more uh cautiously in terms of who who I follow and what my follower ratio that sort of thing not not to get a like social media expert about it but like I look at those numbers and I think well do I really need to follow more people and then I also look at my timeline and I think do I really need to follow more people whereas Facebook I don't care I'll, I'll be friends with anybody on Facebook because I, I never read it it doesn't matter to me right I don't do anything with it either I actually never post and I mean we use it in business for field notes and some other things, but I had, but I just follow my kids and immediate family friends and I just go on there and look at pictures. I don't use it as a, the way it's intended. So I don't think I'll be getting the new phone, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, I think I've mentioned my, my instinct of, I defriend people on their birthdays on Facebook. Basically, if I see you and Facebook tells me it's your birthday and I don't care enough to say happy birthday to you, <laughs> I decide that we no longer need to be friends. Right. But that's, that's everybody for me. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I like people and I want to say happy birthday, but I'm not going to do it on Facebook and then I'll forget. Like, if I don't see you that's that like day. A lovely, it's a lovely present. Like, it's a lovely way to do it. It's like, I have this thing. This just happened to me. Like, we do business with a... I won't name it, but it's a big regional bank and they're fine. And they have a drive through that's right around the corner and we can do checks by photo and the fees, you know, I mean, it's just a, my relationship with the bank is fine. I'm never in there except once in a while to drive through and put some checks in if it's on my way home. And so periodically they call to do a customer um, survey to see how I'm doing and how I like our relationship. And every time they call, they ask me, and I, I never consider the bank at all. There's no, I have no conception that I would ever leave them. They're perfectly fine. But the minute they call and ask me how they're doing, I start to think, you know, those goddamn fees are too high. And then I start, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, well, if, you know, I noticed my last statement here. It says my fee was $82. If you can't get that down to under $40 for the fees, I'm going to take it to another bank. And like, I, I and, and so, and then they're like, oh, we'll see what we can do, Mr. Kudal. And they write me back and they said, we put you on a new plan and now your fees are down to $40. And then they gradually creep back up and everything's fine. I would never notice it. But then sure enough, they do another customer survey. They call me up to see how I'm doing. I'm like, God damn, these fees are too high. You know, like it's like somebody should look at the data and say, don't call Kudal. You know what I mean? It's costing you money. So I- I don't know how it got that. should be your slogan. Don't call Kudal. Don't. I Don't get me going on the phone. Don't call me at work. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> if you own a company where you're the president, the chief of the company, and your name is on the door, these guys selling oil shale and investment services and all these guys who are working out of wire rooms trying to cold call for uh, scammy investment opportunities, they're awesome at getting through your staff. Like, yeah. They're like, is Jimmy there? Like, you know, it's like, it's Bob, you know, you get through, you go, well, this is Robert from uh, Texas Oil Explanation. You know what I mean? Like, it's just funny. And then I just hate when they, I get the phone calls. It's the only thing I hate more than getting phone calls is getting the phone book. When's the last time a human in North America looked something up in a phone book? I'm on that list, that, that don't bring me a fucking phone book list. And I live in an apartment building. And so they will bring these things. And you, you have to have a code or you have to like, get somebody to let you in the front door. 
And so they will go through the call box and dial everyone repeatedly until somebody finally lets them in. They'll bring in this giant stack of phone books yeah. that end up sitting in the hallway for three months before somebody finally throws them away. And it's a waste of trees. It's a waste of space. And the other thing it's a waste of is think of all the people who paid for ads in those things. Because what I hate is when I call, especially if I've called for support, if I've called you and said, something's wrong with my bill or my internet is too freaking slow. And then as soon as you're done helping me and they've, they've gotten extremely not shady because it's obvious what's happening, but they've gotten increasingly sly about this. Um, they're going to say, by the way, please hold for a quick survey. They don't ask, are you willing to take the survey? They don't say, I'm going to send you over. Like literally yesterday, I was on the phone with the uh, cable company and the guy says, please hold for a quick. And before he even said the word survey, I was in the survey. And I don't want to do your survey. I don't care if, you, I mean, if you did a fantastic job, then maybe I'll go through it. But I'm Lex. calling because I'm in distress. Yes. Right. Lex, you could just hang up. Yeah, I do. Could, I do. Yeah. I do hang up. But I just, I hate that they, I hate that I have to feel guilty about hanging up. They put me in the survey. It's like I'm, I'm, I, oh, I'm I almost pot committed and I feel bad. I don't it, hang up on telemarketers either. I, oh, I do. I, yeah, I, if, you, if you call me and I don't know who you are, like within 30 seconds, if I, if, if I either realize that you're uh, somebody that I don't know or, or you're a recording even worse. Yeah. Oh, oh God. Yeah. I just hang up. I don't even say goodbye. I just hang up. I, just, oh, I don't, I don't, really I used to work you. as a telemarketer. So I feel, well, fuck you. Yeah. I, I've heard it all. That's (laughs) how it all started. I worked for a third-party telemarketing agency, so other companies contracted with them. I did. I sold voicemail for Bell Atlantic, and I sold. uh, I did a lot of uh, credit card balance transfers. And I was in high school. I had no idea what a balance transfer was, but I sold them. Wait, wait, you you sold you sold voicemail. Yes, you signed up for voicemail with your existing Bell Atlantic service. For a short time, I worked for I worked for a research company that worked for phone companies when I was in high school, and I, all I remember is I would call people up and ask them a series of questions that that finished with "poor, fair, good, or excellent." <laughs> so the other day, phone rings and somebody else answers it, and they said to me, "They said, Jim, it's uh, Detective uh, Detective Quinn <laughs> from the Chicago Police Department." I'm like, oh, shit, I got to take this, right? So I take the phone. I go, hi, it's Jim. And then you get this. Oh, this is not a, an official call. It's they're, they're trying to raise money for the policeman's ball or something. But, you know, it's, hard, it's oh, hard not to take the call them. from Detective Quinn, you know? You're like, uh-oh. Yeah. And they know just what they're doing. I mean, I, I want to be clear just so nobody gets the wrong impression here. I definitely do hang up on telemarketers. But <laughs> I wait for a break when I can tell them I'm about to do so. What The worst to me is I get the incoming call. From my bank, because you can't get on the official do not call list for somebody you already have services, you know, subscription with. They're allowed to call you. Okay. Um, so the bank will call. You'll see it's from a toll-free number, so I'm pretty sure it's the bank anyway. And then there's the waiting after you say hello while the computer connects you to the next available agent. Like, they don't tell you that's happening, but you say hello and there's nothing there and there's nothing there. Right. And, nothing there. and then you hear the click and the buzz and then it's, oh, hi, this is so-and-so calling. And those are the ones I'll sometimes hang up on. If I realize what's happening and I can motivate myself, I'll hang up before they even speak because then I don't feel like I'm hanging up on somebody. I'm hanging up on a machine. You're way too polite. Yeah. My favorite is when you get the phone call and you answer, you say hello, and there's like a couple seconds of silence. And then you hear, please hold for an important call. <laughs> oh, from. Yeah, right. And then you have to sit on hold. I'm like, no, you fucking called me. I'm not sitting on hold for you. I don't right. know what you want. That, equa- that, equa- that screws up the whole equation of how a phone call is supposed to work. Like, <laughs> yes. like right. if I call you, you can put me on hold for a minute. But if you yeah. call me, you can't put me on hold. Like that's, you know, like it's crazy. This is This is my time. This is me time. And you don't get to interrupt it by making me sit there and do nothing and not have any idea of what you even want to talk about. Right. If it's like, please hold for an important call from the president, okay, maybe that'll be interesting. Right. If it's please hold for an important call from, from Mr. T. Yeah, right, right. So. I, I, I don't even want to hear it. I don't, I don't, apparently you're way too busy and important for me. Right. Did you ever get a call from the president? I got a robocall for a couple robocalls <laughs> from him, so. I used to get a bunch of emails from his wife. I did get one call from the Secret Service once. That was exciting. What'd you do? I didn't do it. This was, I've been to the White House twice, thanks to Twitter. (laughs) And the first, you have to, you know, when they did the first ever tweet up at the White House, I was one of the Twitterers selected to go. And they told the people who were going like three days in advance, they had to do all sorts of Secret Service checking. And so they called to ask some, to ask some follow-up questions. Wow. Did you get to meet the president when you were there? I can't believe you don't know this. Yeah. Yeah. This was not so long ago. Um, you, you, you met Obama. I, well, we shook hands. Really? I even blogged about the experience because and I'll tell the story and you can link to it later. But wait, 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 why didn't you get him on the show? 
<laughs> I, we didn't have the show at the time. But oh. so I'm there, and we, I see how, you know, we're in the east room of the White House. He probably hates telemarketers, too, by the way. I, I bet. But the signs all say, you know, there's no photography allowed in there. But they're like, you guys are from Twitter. Do whatever you want. So people are taking pictures. You guys are from Twitter. Do whatever right. you want. They had no idea. What, this was their first time ever dealing with it. They had uh, no idea what was going on. And we're literally in the room where just a couple of weeks prior, he had said uh, he had made the televised announcement about uh, bin Laden being dead. Right, right. And so we're walking all around and they're like, okay, now we're going to have you guys go into this sitting situation. And we don't know where the president's coming in from. So people are trying to pick the side they think he's going to come in on. And I saw the people were doing this. I'm like, whatever. I'm either going to shake his hand or not. And I just sat where there was a seat. So he comes in on the aisle I'm closer to. But I can see I'm like the fourth person in the row. And persons one, two, and three are going to get a handshake as he's walking up to the front of the room. But I'm not. And I've, I've made my peace with that. And then as he's going by me, he literally walks past my row. And you tripped and then him. Yeah. Makes eye contact with me and go, steps back. And there's it's on video. You can see it happen. It happens, you know, in a matter of seconds. But walks past me and then for whatever reason he says, I got to shake that guy's hand. And he leans nice. over to get mine. <laughs> and uh, it was a special moment that uh, that Barry and I shared. It was very nice. nice. Barry. Nice. I didn't know that. I didn't. How did I not know? Like, that might have been. That might have been before I knew you. I yes. Oh, that was definitely before you knew me. And uh, it was Jack Dorsey was the moderator taking questions from Twitter. And asking them of the president. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, reading about that, I think. And I was the only person. I was there, uh, you know, just as a uh, human. But I, I was trying to make it be something that I could write about for Macworld. And it was technically, re- technically related. So I was asking a couple tech-related and journalism-related questions. Like, you know, there was a team behind the scenes filtering through questions coming from Twitter and passing those questions along to Jack. Uh, through his earpiece but that meant that he was rarely following up and if obama gave a pat answer where a quote-unquote true journalist would have pressed him for more information or said you know you didn't really answer his question jack was just right let's move on to the next tweet question and i was asking if he thought that that was a problem and he did not appreciate my asking that question i once met a prince like the singer or the royalty no no uh, royalty uh prince constantine of the netherlands he was uh he was also speaking at a conference i was speaking at and so uh there's like a, a meet and greet thing and I wind up standing there, shook the guy's hand and talked to him for a little bit about technology and apps and stuff. And I walked away from it feeling pretty weird. Like that, that didn't seem like the sort of thing that should ever happen <laughs> because who still has a prince? Who still has royalty? Turns out a lot of the world. I got nothing in terms of royalty or world leaders. <laughs> Dave, let's take a break for a minute and talk about this episode's fine, fine sponsors. Is that okay with you? I, I, yeah, I love talking about sponsors. And here's the thing. This is what's exciting to me. Both of them, brand new, first-time, unprofessional sponsors. Boom. And you you know what my rule is. New is always better. That's right. Except for repeat sponsors. We also love them. Anyway, sponsor number one, Transporter. <laughs> You're going to go to filetransporter.com slash unprofessional. Again, it's filetransporter.com slash unprofessional. This is a... Uh, a magical networked hard drive. It's sort of a t- triangular prism-shaped thing. I'm looking at mine right now, and it lights up. You can even customize how brightly it lights up. Wait, you can do that? Yeah, on the website, you can choose how bright the light is. Oh, I have to go play with that. They, they did. They, we should call that out. They sent us these things. Yes, they sent us transporters so we could test them out. But let's tell you what it is. This is basically it's a networked hard drive that is essentially your own private Dropbox. Only instead of having a monthly fee to store a ton of files and instead of having to rely on, you know, Dropbox to keep them and handling those uploading things, all the files go on a local hard drive that's there in your home or office or whatever. And then through the magic of technology and magic of magic, I guess, it also can sync to anybody else who has a transporter. So Dave and I have literally sent audio files back and forth for this very podcast, this very show. Uh, using these transporters. I've also used it for musical collaboration. That's right. Because it's very good, especially for giant files. You know, it's uploading a, you know, if you're doing very large files, movies, pictures, that sort of thing, Dropbox and, and music, iCloud, right? Music can get, uh, can be space constrained. But the cool thing with transporter, we'll get to the how you buy it in a minute, but is that you can choose what size hard drive to put in. They sell it with a one terabyte or a two terabyte hard drive, or you can just buy the empty shell and put your own 2.5 inch drive in there. They sent us the two gigs, right? Uh, two terabytes. Two terabyte. Sorry, they sent us the two terabyte. I, I actually have no idea how big it is because I can't fill it up. <laughs> that sounded weird. Um, huh. 
How about that? But yeah, so there are, here's the thing. It's no fees, Dave. All right? You buy the transporter one time, and that's it. You own it. There are no recurring monthly things. There's no limit on how much you can share files or who you can share them with. There's no bandwidth limits, anything like that. It's just you buy it, and now it's yours to share files with as you please. There's also such a great idea. Yeah, there's also uh, an iPad and iPhone app, so you can access, you can browse all your files, download and store files on your iOS devices. You can view them in other apps, send them on other apps. You know, it's it's a good little iOS citizen. And then the thing is, you know, uh, Dropbox puts those little doohickeys over your icons, so you know if they're synced or not. Transporter does it too. So you can even know, is this, is this sharing? Is this finished uploading? Is it only on my local transporter? Or am I asking this from the internet at large? It's pretty great. It's, it's hit. There's a lot of I stuff. I got to be honest. I didn't know there was an iPhone app. I'm going to go download that. Yeah. Well, you should. So, I'm so glad I'm listening to this ad read. So you're going to go to filetransporter.com slash unprofessional. You can get a, an empty drive, you know, an empty transporter that you stick your own drive in for $199. You can get the one terabyte for $299. You can get the two terabyte for $399. But here's the thing. You actually get to pay less, you the listener. You can save 10% if you put in the uh, discount code unprofessional. So uh, transporter owners have told Transporter, have told the people that they, using discount codes, they can get better prices uh, than when they try to look on the web for, you know, other hard drive bargains. So go and check out using the uh, the promo code unprofessionally, save 10%. If you get the two terabyte, two terabyte drive, Dave, that's 40 bucks you're saving right off the bat. That's huge. For all of the great sponsors that we've had and all the good deals that they've given our listeners, I got to say, this is, a, this is a pretty good cost savings. Yeah. I mean... 10% off of a, you know, a, a, a relatively big ticket item in terms of, you know, it's not a $5 app. It's a pretty big deal. No, go, go transporter. Filetransporter.com slash unprofessional. An unprofessional checkout. And the, our other sponsor also sent us stuff. Yes, they did. Uh, they, it is, it is uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying this right. Hoban Cards. H-O-B-A-N Cards. And that, that's HobanCards.com. I'm going to spell this out one more time. H-O-B-A-N C-A-R-D-S dot com. They, they, gave, they gave us talking points, but I just kind of want to react to this package they sent. I, I open up my mail, and there's a, looks like a, like a recycled paper bag style envelope, a small envelope. And inside is a collection of, of sample cards that they sent over, just showing off their work. And these things are gorgeous, letter-pressed, uh, thick, heavy cardstock business cards. And they are just gorgeous, super well done. Uh, and a very nice touch. One of them is a business card for Malcolm Reynolds, Mal at BrownCoatApp.com. So if the Firefly fans out there, they were I had to Google pandering it. a little bit. But yeah, so Lex, Lex hadn't seen it. But so they um the they use a letterpress that's from 1902. If it were from like 1912, 1916, I would not be interested in Hoban cards. But they use a 1902 letterpress, so you know it's good. Yeah, each card individually hand fed through a letterpress from 1902. That's impressive just for the the hipster factor alone. Exactly, and I don't know if you um you know if you've ever ordered a card using the Cards app. It's the same idea. You know, the Apple prints those on letterpress. It's 100 percent cotton paper. So these business cards are thick. I mean, you hand this to a person and you're like, "Here's my card." That other person gonna be like, "Well, sir or madam, you have very impressive business cards. You clearly are a very impressive person." This is how people think, and it's you're true. a man of taste. That's right. I appreciate you. Uh, I think that if you're going to hand somebody a business card, and I really do believe this, if you're going to hand somebody a business card, you are giving them something that they are now responsible for carrying around in their pocket as a physical item that is taking up space somewhere on their person. And if you're going to do that to somebody, if you're going to inflict somebody with that burden, it should be worth carrying. That's right. And these things feel like they're worth carrying. These, these are the kind of cards that you would take out later just to think about how well made the card is. And if somebody's putting that much thought into their business card... Beyond just coming up with a, a whiz-bang, uh, Web 2.0-sounding title for themselves, but the actual feel of the thing, that tells you something about that person. Basically, you're, you, when you order them, you get 100 letterpress business cards on this thick paper. You're basically going to think to yourself, I don't want to give these out because they're so great. But they, you know, the, the ones they sent us, you can do your own custom design if you want, but the one they sent us are you know, all the different design offerings that they have, and they're, you know, they're clean, well-designed, they look nice, they're, very, they're slick. And they have possibly the best promo code for unprofessional listeners in the history of unprofessional-related promo codes. I, I really do love this. Can I say it? Or oh, do you want go to say for it. it. It's yours, man. The promo code is HumbleBrag. <laughs> and you use the promo code HumbleBrag. <laughs> And, and what do you get? You get free shipping. So it's humble brag, free all one shipping. word. So you get your 100% cotton printed letterpress cards uh, without paying for the shipping. And nobody likes paying for shipping. They're not on Amazon Prime. So if you want to get free shipping, you've got to use our promo code, and it's humble brag. I love it. All I one see, word. I, 
can't get over how thick these are. So go to HobanCards.com, like Dave said, H-O-B-A-N Cards.com, and go to FileTransporter.com slash Unprofessional. Use HumbleBrag at one and Unprofessional at the other. It's your job to re-listen and figure out which is which. And uh, thank you to both of those sponsors. Love having first-time sponsors. I love, first, I love sponsors that send us stuff. Yeah. And now we've got like, transporters and other people's business cards. We are in. Well, the other people, it's Shepard Book, uh, uh, well, Evan Hawkins from uh, Hoban, and uh, Malcolm Reynolds. So right. It's, it's pretty good. It's all. And there's like a Janestown reference in here. So you've never seen Firefly. You have no idea what's going on. But for me, a big Firefly fan, this was actually a very nice touch. I've seen the, all the rest of the, uh, the Josh, Joss Whedon oeuvre. I want to be clear. It's just I, I sat out Firefly. I didn't like it. Oh, how? You got to get into that shit, man. I'll try it again. I want to say, if you want to get in on the the Dave and Lex sponsorship love, all you have to do is give us money in exchange for goods and services. Uh, Go to (laughs) Mule Radio. It doesn't hurt to send us free stuff. Go to MuleRadio.net. No, sponsor. Go to sponsor.muleradio.net and uh, hook us up. We'll take care of you. We'll do good. This might be the best ad read we've ever done. And they should also, they being you, the listeners, you should go follow us at uh, twitter.com or facebook.com or app.net slash unprofesh at any one of those. Do that. Let's, uh, let's, let's get back to Jim. I think that the group of people who have been doing interesting or interesting stuff on the web since 99, 2000 was pretty small. And, you know, it's sort of like the population of South by Southwest, you know, like everybody knew each other for the first four years. Then everybody knew somebody who knew somebody for the next four years. And now nobody knows anybody because so many people are involved in it. So maybe that's why I know people. I just met you guys. That's right. Before I met Dave uh, earlier, but I hadn't met you, Lex. I know this is exciting for me. Considering the people that you know, not to get into a weird name droppy thing, but considering that you've you've known you've known people for uh, a while, and you've you've known some very interesting people, you currently know some inter- uh, very interesting people. When you and I met, you introduced yourself to me, like you just came up and said hi and shook my hand. Right. And no, I guess knowing what I know now, that's interesting because it it, it seems like. If it were me, like as I as I know more and more people, it gets harder and harder for me to like just go up and say hi to somebody. So to have maintained that 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 seems like a, a very cool old school. You never know who you're going to meet, sort of thing to do. Uh, I, well, I think the, the the other side of that coin is that I, after I meet somebody, I immediately forget their name. So it's like it doesn't. <laughs> uh, is it interesting? Here's a story about. Um, internet royalty for you is that I had been uh, online friends with Zeldman for a long time, starting in whenever, 1999 or whatever, but I had never met him. And it was South by Southwest in 2006. We'd never met in person. And he was in the green room. He was about to give a speech or whatever. And I, he was talking to somebody and I happened to be there. I walked up to him and I said, um, Jeffrey, I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to say hi. It's Jim Kudal, and hopefully we can catch up later. And he stopped what he was doing, and he stood up, and he gave me a hug. <laughs> and then he said, we'll talk later, and he sat back down to his conversation. And I thought, wow. I think I'm going to like that guy. <laughs> you know, like, it was just, so that, I mean, you know, I, I'd like to introduce myself to you as one thing, but a nice hug like that, boy, that's powerful. Yeah. And that's the kind of guy he is, anyhow. So he's a hugging kind of a guy. But Dave, I'm well, curious, I don't understand, why don't you, why do you find it harder to go up and say hi to people? Uh, because if I'm in a room and I know five of the people, uh, and, and there's five I don't know, I probably won't go say hi to those other five. I see. I probably won't introduce myself. If it's five people I know and one other person, uh, even that, uh, most of the time I think I would just, it depends on you know how I walk into the room and who's there and that sort of thing. But it, it, it's just hard to, I don't know, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't, it's not that I don't feel okay talking to that person. I probably will talk to them. And in fact, most of the time, I'll probably sit there for an hour having a conversation with them before one of us finally goes, wait, uh, by the way, I'm Dave. Yeah, I find that happens all the time, is that you just, the, something happens and the conversation starts and it's, you're already into an exchange before you realize you don't even know who each other is. That sort of happens. And a lot of these relationships we've developed are so disembodied through Twitter or email or whatever that maybe it's sort of nice to see. I mean, that's, I still do occasionally go to conferences or speak at conferences because it's, it's so nice to just spend some time. I mean, sort of like this podcast, just actually just talking about, you know, just having a conversation because there's no, you know, there's no, it's hard. You can't even call a conversation on Twitter a conversation. It's a uh, series, yeah. you know what I mean? Like an, an email thread is not a conversation and, you know, so, and nobody likes to be on the phone anymore. So like it's, it's sort of 
in person or not at all, really, in terms of developing a relationship. And the conversation is integral to work, too. And it's, a, or it's sort of an interesting topic, this whole thing about remote working and everything that all got everybody talking with the Yahoo and everything. And that my sort of take on it is that there are a lot of benefits in meaningless adult conversation that you don't generally talk about things you don't you don't meander in your conversations online you're you email something generally there's a request or an answer involved in an email exchange or even in a twitter exchange you don't there's no opportunity to just sort of let the conversation go where it is just like this one like the one we're having right now good things can sometimes come out of conversations that start with phrases like wouldn't it be cool if you know what I mean? Like, right, and, and, right. and so I think that getting people like-minded people who know each other together for a long series of drinks, uh, Dave, as we did recently, or, um, or, or just, uh, in the, in the room at a, at a conference or over a lunch or something is, is essential and, and pleasurable. And then in the work environment, I think while everybody doesn't have to be all hands on deck all the time, there is a, I think a great advantage in discussing something, working on your own and coming back and arguing about it some more. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that they're yeah. there and that gets lost. I think a lot in a lot of companies that are completely remote. Yeah. I, I think that remote works for, if you're a very small team, and you're you're very well connected and not all in the same location. I think remote can work because then you're, when you do get together, you're forced to all get together. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, if it's more than a handful of people, then you're you're going to see diminishing returns on that. I but, think remote can work. I think in the vast majority of cases it doesn't. For for us, it's sort of interesting is that we have these two products. We have the deck, which is entirely digital. There's no physical aspect to it at all. It's all negotiating and uh, booking schedules and you know. Uh, organizing uh, inventory and all that sort of stuff, but it's all completely digital. And then we have this other company, Field Notes, which is entirely analog, 100% analog. In fact, we're not we're not ever even going to do an app for Field Notes. That's not Field Notes doesn't get an app. You know, Field Notes is about <laughs> 1930s design aesthetic. You know, and the American sort of agricultural. Uh, uh, history. There's no app involved. So, but the 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 unexpected benefit of doing a physical product is people order this stuff. It's got to get packed and shipped. So we need to have people at the studio to work. Right. You know that the have the work is actually this physical thing where we have to. You know, sometimes we bring in six or seven extra people in a day to just pack and ship on a big day. And that I think um, the unexpected benefit of that is the is the community aspect of it. So if we were just if our two businesses were the ad network and some digital, uh, let's say an app that we developed, um, there would be no there would the community wouldn't be the same. I think so. I mean, it's a kind of a hackneyed phrase this whole idea of happy accidents, but there's less opportunity for serendipity when every communication has a purpose. You look at especially our industry; we're so conference heavy, and I think the reason is because so many of us work remotely, but also we. We develop friendships with people who live in other places. And yes. We develop real relationships with people in other places, and we need that that socializing aspect. Yeah, the gathering of the tribe idea, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I just wish I were better in bigger situations because, like you, Jim, you know, I I really like adult conversation, and I feel like when I'm at a in a bar, for me, if I have trouble hearing, then I feel like I if I'm not hearing everything in the conversation, I feel like I'm hearing none of it. I mean, if people are split up into multiple groups, that's one thing, but when I'm in a in a noisier or more crowded situation, I just find it super hard to really get involved in a conversation. And so I feel like I suck in those. I always prefer being able to do, you know, a smaller group, you know, let's go out with just the three of us, uh, yeah. four of us. But then once you get yeah. into it, like, you know, let's go to a bar and there's 20 people there. I, I can't hear anything. And then I just feel like an idiot. I have no idea what to say or who to talk to. And right. it's, it's the only time I feel like I have Asperger's or something is when I'm in those larger situations. And I just, I don't, yeah. I don't know how to be. Or all of a sudden you feel like you're that dorky 15 year old again. And you're like, don't know, you know, am I one of the cool kids? How do I fit into this group? And all of a sudden you get self-conscious and you know, it's sort of interesting, but see it all that comes from practice too and so the less we do it the less we get out of it when we do it so that's sort of interesting right. that that you know and nobody i mean i never quite frankly ever went to south by southwest for the panels although i saw many brilliant presentations um by smart people but it was more about you know what you said dave was you know that getting people from disparate locations together to have a laugh, you know, which is super important, I think. Yeah, the greatest thing is the thing that you didn't expect to have happen. 
Right. You need that. You need you need a degree of ele- uh, uh, of chance. Right. Right. It's like I, I'm doing some work on planning a trip for our family for the late summer. For the last couple of years, we've done long city to city to city to city train trips in Europe. I've learned that the if I can just get the bare bones of the trip laid out, meaning approximately what train goes from Vienna to Prague at what time and lay out the hotel rooms, that our trip will be better if I don't make the reservation at the museum or if I don't figure we have to go eat at this restaurant. And that if if all falls on its own, we're going to miss a lot of stuff, but we're going to find stuff that we never would have if we were overplanned. So exactly, exactly. Know. So I like uh, for Ireland, going to Ireland. I, I bought a ticket to Dublin and I bought a ticket home from Amsterdam. Cool. How I get from Dublin to Amsterdam, I have no idea. I'll figure it out when I get there. And I think that that would that would probably freak a lot of people out. Yeah. But it's actually I find it to be less stressful because I don't have a schedule that I need to adhere to. Yeah, I I think it's great. It's a little more difficult with five people, I think, but oh, when sure, you're right. on your own. The thing the thing to extend this travel metaphor, like there I have to tell you guys, there is very little better in the world than being on a train on a sunny winter afternoon rolling through the German countryside drinking a beer. There's there is very <laughs> little in in the world that's better because you you know this is a 5-hour trip. You have nowhere to be. You're not, you know, nothing to do. You can play a game of cards. You just stare out the window. And that maybe that is more attractive now relative to our earlier conversation that we're always so distracted by so many things is that here you've got this little cocoon of time where you have no responsibilities and nothing to do but stare out the window. And that becomes precious, maybe in a way that maybe it wouldn't have been in the past. And if you're lucky, nobody will call you. Or you just turn the phone off, I suppose. <laughs> uh, this is Detective Quinn. I don't mean to bother you, but yeah. Um. I was just thinking that when I go to, you know, we're thinking about a trip to Disney World because we have young children and that's what you're supposed to do. But I know that for me, if we go to Disney World, I'm going to handle it the exact opposite of the Kudals and Whiskuses of the world. Because Disney <laughs> is so prohibitively and insultingly expensive that I want to make sure, and there's so many lines and just waiting and all that nonsense. I want to make sure that we do it as intricately as possible. So, you know, I, there's these websites and books devoted to get to the park a half an hour early for the ribbon cutting ceremony, and then you get in first. And when you get in first, have some of the party get into line for this ride while other people take your tickets and <laughs> oh get fast God. passes for these other two rides. Because I want to be, you know, and then my sister did this. She has five kids, and they did it, and Jesus. they got there. I know, it's crazy. And they uh, they were done and back in their hotel each day by 3 p.m. because they had done everything they planned to do that day. And I, to me, that's awesome. Like, if I can nail Disney, that's the only way I'm going to do it. And you get back in the hotel room and say, okay, let's watch the video of how much fun that's we just right. had. That's right. That sounds horrible. Where's the where's the adventure? You're, you're, you're eating the spam of adventure. I did, yes. I did, the, I did Disney just once. And luckily, my... Kids have grandparents that love to do it, so I never had to do it again. That was sort of my, it was always right around Father's Day. My Father's Day present was my family went to Disneyland and I didn't have to go. 